I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is the Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, from mug yachts to tugboats to iceboats, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Captain Scott Dodson. Hey Todd, how you doing today? I'm doing great, and uh, this episode is actually a continuation of the previous episode, which was the Eastern Mediterranean, and I know a lot of people are really excited to find out what happens in the rest of the story. If you haven't listened to the episode, go back and listen to it. And without further ado, we have the continuation of that story. We had a drink when we got back. And um, a lot of places, you can get alcohol and stuff in Turkey, but it is a Muslim country and they don't drink alcohol. So there's not a lot of alcohol around. Um, But alcohol on the boat is a sort of a treat. Um, And um, so anyway, we're, we're having a drink and they were telling me that they have some family that was escaping or had escaped uh, Iraq. This was a time when the Iraq war was going on, just had started. And they had escaped. And the whole family, um, husband, wife, three children, ages from 11 to 7, um, were had escaped with their lives with just what was on their back, and they had managed um, to get into Syria. And they had crossed over to Syria, and they had sent word that they could cross into Turkey. And this is what Irish wanted me to do, was when they came into Turkey, was put them on, we would get on the boat, and then we would sail, not going to Haifa, not going anywhere. We would sail directly to Cyprus, where they would be essentially free, and they could get passports, and... And he was arranging everything, and, and you know, everything would be fine. Now, I didn't sign up for this, um, but there was a part of my experience, having been the tip of the spear, so to speak, in, in, in Thailand, in Laos, in, in Vietnam, having, having operated along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, um, having been the security person and and the agent for the Air Force's forward observers to drop bombs, Nixon's bombing of Cambodia, um, you know, I was literally watching that go on. I was literally a few miles from that, directing it with the Air Force guys who were calling it in. So to see that and have that experience and then turn around and it just, you could save my family by cooperating with us and we're not going to put you into jeopardy and don't worry about your boat. I can buy your boat 20 times over. We'll take care of you. We just need your expertise in this sailing and this moving about and the the flag and your ability as a human being to, you know, deal with situations as they come up. I took a deep, deep, deep breath. 
I finished. I was having a glass of scotch, actually. I finished it and put it down. And I said, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. I can do it. Well, as it turns out, his family couldn't cross into Turkey from Syria. So they were in a car, and they were going to head down to Latika, which is um, a port town in Syria on the Mediterranean. It's also uh, where the Russian Navy is. And flying into Latika with a big-ass American flag on the back of your boat into which is basically the only Russian naval base uh, in the Mediterranean and it's Syria and we don't have very much diplomatic um, cooperation between our country and their country and all the rest of that kind of stuff so I took the flag down and made it kind of small Um, flags are important in the Middle East everybody has to have a flag flying you have to have check-in you have to have the courtesy flag up etc now where you can buy a syrian courtesy flag i have outside of syria i have no idea because nobody ever goes there but syria is full of ruins it's it's like archaeological gold mine it's like one of the coolest places for all of that kind of stuff and i you know i had in my mind um i was very excited about going to this place that was would be okay for us. We got assurances from the agents, and the agents talked to the agents in Syria, and everything, all the fix was in. The monies had been paid. We were going to be just fine. We were going to go in. We were going to get our fuel. Um, because you have to understand, we had already, um, you know, by the time we got to Latika, um, Latikia, we we were like you know nine we we were like already nine hundred nautical miles into our trip, so it was a big trip. We never we had the coast in view almost the entire time too. So we got into the port. We were met before we got into the port by a Syrian gunboat, and uh, of course they don't they didn't speak English. Luckily. Um, Irish uh, spoke Arabic. They kind of could speak a little Arabic, but they weren't big on acknowledging him. They realized right off the bat that, oh, he's an Iraqi. We don't care about these people. They're terrible people. That's what his thought was. Um, Cecilia, who was also Iraqi, she she added up to nothing. She had herself covered. Um, my French... My French mate, um, it, was, it was hard to even keep clothes on her on a good day because um, this, this is your cultural bubbles, right? And, and normally she would walk around the boat essentially naked and um, without a thought to it because she's very French and this is the way we do things. And, um, and I quite enjoy that. And... Um, uh, this we had that kind of freedom but we were now in an environment in a cultural environment in which she had to be covered and her hair had to be covered and you had to pay respects and you know oh it was just it was just like mind-bending it was like going from one part of space to another part of space in a in a nanosecond so here the environmental bubble the cultural bubble all this stuff is sort of rubbing up against each other our bubble in the boat was becoming more and more um, unsafe. 
and more and more uncomfortable because I was really in a position where I was thinking that, you know, Irish and Cecilia, although lovely people, they had made an effort to be extremely kind to us. And I was just seeing all this sort of danger starting to come up and all this sort of darkness and deception. And, you know, listen, we're on a small boat. This is what we're doing. We're on a small boat. So the Syrian gunboat comes out and the captain comes over. Um, they, they come on board. Um, I showed him my papers. I showed him some papers that we had from the agent to go into the, the port. Um, there was a lot of hemming. There was a lot of hum, you know, whatever the case may be. I, I was ready to actually give um, some money to the captain and Irish looked at me and he said, nah, I don't think that's going to be a good idea to do that. And, um, and I, so I didn't. And um, I got the impression that had I done it, we probably would have been arrested on the spot. But the captain got back on his boat and let us go. And we went into the port and he literally followed us into the port. Um, we went it's a, it's mostly an industrial port. It's not really, um, you know, they have a small port for speedboats and smaller boats and stuff like that, but nothing for my, my boats where I was sort of in the industrial part of the port. And you'll often find this when you're really traveling the world, when you're really going to places that are outside of the um, tourism world that, you know, get used to putting your boat on a dirty you know, dock covered with crap and trucks driving by and people walking by, you know, and, you know, it's all kinds of stuff going on, all kinds of stuff. On the waterfront had nothing on these people, nothing. Brando would have been sucked up and spit out in a heartbeat, even though he was in the movie. So we finally got the boat on the dock. My agent... um, he came out, he met us, he was very nice. Hi, how you doing? You know, like, this is like, we're such a beautiful place. I'm so happy you came. The government is happy you came. Um, blah, blah, blah. Here's the, he brought a courtesy flag. We're flying this courtesy flag, uh, the Syrian flag. And, um, you know, we had uh, a, the in our courtesy flags, because you have to have where all your crew is. So we had we had the French flag, a little French flag. We had um, the Canadian flag, uh, we had the British flag, and 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 then we had the Syrian flag. And I was very careful to make sure the Syrian flag was on top of all of them. So they take this stuff very seriously. And um, I didn't have to put an American flag up because it's an American boat and I'm the American. End of story. So uh, we stayed there. We got some more fuel. We had a fuel truck come by, f- fuel us up, and I spent... I, I think it was, I think I paid about 300% more for the fuel. And it actually was diesel fuel, but it was diesel fuel designated for um, home heaters. And um, it's normally fairly cheap and it's colored. And this, they color the heating oil um, pinkish in some cases or green, depends on what country. And, and so that, the actual marine fuel is a different color, is a clear 
color or a green color or a pink color, depending, but they color it so that you can't buy the home fuel um, diesel because it's the same stuff. It's the same diesel, but it's just colored differently because it's much cheaper um, and it's subsidized for housing, whereas for marine, it's not. And, and, but this, these places are not very, um, you know, this is not, you know, yacht friendly. This is not yacht friendly stuff here. This is like big industrial boat shit. So we realized that we were being watched. Um, there were guards um, that were placed um, uh, to the right and to the left port and the starboard of the boat on the dock, um, sitting on bollards and watching the boat. Um, there was nobody was going to get on that boat without them knowing about it. And nobody was going to be able to leave in the middle of the night without them knowing about it. So we were pretty much there for the there. Um, I stayed on the boat because I just had this sneak. I just, I had a sneaking suspicion. Some, some nasty stuff was going to go down here. And I was really kind of paranoid as well. I think I had every right to be paranoid and, and, you know, we were in Syria. I wanted to go. I wanted to look around. I wanted to, you know, get to know the people. And, and, and I did go do some shopping in the market. And when I came back from the shopping in the market, and what I learned in the market is, is there was this level of paranoia and a suspiciousness. But there was this sort of like desperate look in their eyes. And I can see, even then, I knew that this place was being run I knew it was being run by a tyrant. I knew that the people were all involved in this whole KGB spy on your neighbor thing. And I could see the Russian sailors in the place. They they had they walked around with impunity. Um they had their own separate base for their ships and stuff. So they were a bit isolated, but they were in the town. And um, I just stayed clear to them. I didn't make any kind of eye contact with them. I didn't want to get, you know, into kind of any kind of wrestling match or whatever the case may be with these folks. My projection of my environment became very reduced. Um, my boat became a sanctuary in this sea of political, cultural, military environments that all floated around and threatened threatened my very presence well irish and cecilia they had gone um in a car um they had gone and seen their family who was there and the trick now was they wanted to get on the boat but they didn't have the passports to get on the boat. They were Iraqi refugees. They had refugee cards, but I couldn't take a refugee and put them on the boat and go anywhere with a refugee. So they, they talked a lot about what they could do. Um, he came, they both came back very late in the evening. And um, I was, re, I, the boat was fueled. I, I got a hose. I washed the boat off, um, which was great because I hadn't done that in a while. And because water is pretty priceless in that part of the world um even even though there's plenty of it strangely enough so they come back and they said we can leave in the morning and so my agent came over in the morning um we had uh, uh we had coffee 
and um, actually a young boy brought a tray full of coffee and little coffee cups and uh, served this coffee really dark Syrian just like super 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 get up and go coffee and it was very bitter and very beautiful and I, I to this day I still have that taste in my mouth um, in spite of all the dust in spite of the Russian Navy out of there who were kind of like our sworn enemies and in, in spite of the police and the culture of paranoia and spying and reporting on each other and all the rest of this kind of stuff. There was a wink and a nod as to we're really happy you came because your environment, your person has changed a little bit of our person and you've given us a little bit of faith and the value that you put the trust you put in us to bring this beautiful boat into our country is much appreciated. So at that point, we pick it up, pick up the lines, cast off, and we go. And now we are cleared to go to Beirut. Now, Syria, at the time, Syria was still in Beirut quite heavily. And Beirut had gone through a number of wars, and the place was in a bit of a chaos. It's always in a bit of a chaos. But uh, the refugees, Irish and Sicily's family, they were going to take a car down, and they could go through. They had a Syrian stamp on their passports, their Iraqi passports, and they had a refugee card. So they were cool to be in Syria. And since parts of Beirut were a Syrian, under Syrian control, considered part of the Syrian state, even parts of Beirut were, almost all of Beirut was considered part of the Syrian state. Um, very complicated political thing between the Muslims, um, the Christians, and the Druze. And they all have power, they all have enclaves, and like I said before, they have their... Um, quarters that they live in and, and operate from, and it's there's a lot of violence and weapons, and Beirut is just a, an, a once an amazing place and a vitality and openness, but it's also a place of extreme um, danger and poverty and sadness. But the one thing about Beirut is, in all of this chaos and I kind of look at it this way, this environment of chaos is like, you ever see in a bubble bath, bubbles, right? Thousands of little tiny bubbles around one big bubble or one big bubble over thousands of little bubbles inside. I'm just sort of giving you a kind of visual image of how to think about this. And Beirut is like that. And it's so chaotic. And it's a place I actually quite like that you could you could buy your way out of anything. If you have the cash, you can keep moving. So we, we sailed down to Beirut, and we were down in Beirut, and there was, there was the, the ship sunk. Um, the, the navigation into to the harbor of Beirut is just ridiculous because there's tons of stuff that have been bombed and sunk, big ships 
there's there's all sorts of small vessels that have been bombed and and sunk. But this was at a moment of, of some peace. So we weren't in danger of being fired upon. Although one night I could hear um, artillery um, way off in the distance. It sounded like thunder, but I, I, I know the difference between thunder and artillery. Uh, and, I, and I wasn't nervous about it, but I was aware of it. And I was hyper excited about it. I couldn't really sleep. Um, again... Beirut was very dusty, um, very warm, you know, in the 90s. Um, we ended up getting some beautiful fresh food, um, some salads and lettuce and, and apricots and um, just, you know, wonderful, wonderful apples, peaches, oranges, lemons. Um, we were totally loaded up with with fresh fruit and stuff like that. The one thing that we really couldn't get was uh, you could, there was no way of getting any kind of beef if you wanted beef, which wasn't a big requirement for any of us on the boat. Um, we could get lamb, a lot of lamb, um, which was good. So we kind of loaded up on lamb chops, et cetera, et cetera. And some delicious stuff, by the way. Just don't get me off into my whole lamb thing, you know any case um it was very pleasant in a kind of unpleasant environment so irish and cecilia came back they left again they came back and this time they came with their entire family and i had told them i said you know we had kind of plotted this out i said look i don't think you should get on the boat in the port i think this is a crazy idea because Someone is watching. Everybody's watching, right? I said, why don't we go to a beach somewhere? And then you can get on the boat. I'll come into the beach, my dinghy, pick you up, bring you back out to the boat. Nobody will see us. We'll already be out of the sea. We don't have to navigate through all the wreckage, the lights, the navigation lights that don't work. Um, and all the rest of that kind of stuff, the smugness of the uh, government officials, the, 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 everybody's handout for money. We don't have to do any of that. We can just go down, get on the beach, go down, boom, done. So Irish came back with Cecilia and said, look, there's a beach very close to the Israeli border. And it is supposedly just a lovely little beach, rocky, um, and they're going to be waiting there for us. I said, okay. And he says, I'm going to go with them, and Cecilia will take you down to the beach. Okay. You never know about people's sense of direction, do you? I think telling people direction um, regardless of the language, is always the hardest thing to do because people, even in their own language, have a piss poor sense of direction. Oh, you go, you know, you go down there to that thing and you make a left, and then after, you know, like, like you see the dog, then you make a right, okay, and then you go, you know, and, and people have all these different ways of, of saying directions to you. So, I I immediately are like, okay, give me the coordinates. What are the, what are the coordinates for it? So I gave him um, a handheld GPS I had, and I gave him my radio, a radio, portable radio, VHF radio, 
and we put it you know um i think i don't we just are zero seven i think we were on and and so we left we cleared out i paid the fees i got like a lot of ugly looks um i ended up paying coffee money coffee money is the bribes you paid I gave him a crisp $100 American dollar bill. And the guy looked at me like, this ain't enough, dude. I, I gave him two, and he smiled, and that was it. So off we went. So we went down further um, south, and um, I, got, I got Irish on the radio. Um, the boat, I couldn't anchor. The water was a little too deep, unless it got really close, and there was some breakers up there. Not bad, enough to get the dinghy through. Um, really wasn't an ideal situation. And um, I put the dinghy in the water. Um, I had my mate, she kept the boat kind of in one position. She knew how to sail and handle the boat, so she just kept it there. Um, it was that night. We went shooting down. Um, I went shooting down through the uh, surf which wasn't bad. It was long, kind of roly-poly surf. And because um, the shallows reached way out from the shore. And and we got in, I got in there. I got the family, the five of them, who were just, I mean, their eyes were as big as saucers. They were so frightened. The kids didn't want to get in the boat, in the dinghy. Irish finally talked to everybody. Everybody got in the boat. We turned around. I got the boat out through the surf. Very difficult because of the weight of the boat. We almost swamped the boat um, by one wave. and um, But I managed to um, do some quick bailing. You know, I had life jackets on everybody. And we just sort of puttered out there. We finally got out to the boat, got everybody on the boat with what, you know, bags they had. They Everybody had like a little bag. And, and, you know, the little girl, she was about seven. She, she, she had her little twinkle, twinkle bag it was pink and, you know, it was a Disney bag. And, um, I was, uh, you know, it just like, it was breaking my heart to do this. You know, it was breaking my, I mean, I felt good about doing it, but just to have people in this sort of desperate situation is just, you know, their desperation rubs off on you. It changes your whole world. It changes what what you see as your environmental place. Got the dinghy up on the boat, got everything secure. And our next stop, believe it or not, was not to go to Lanarka Cyprus, but to go to Haifa in Israel. And this was a very, very important thing because uh, Irish and Cecilia had a relationship with somebody in Israel that was going to issue passports to his family, but they had to go, they had to be there to get the passports. And then they would turn around, um, they were Canadian, they were going to get Canadian passports. And then they would turn around from Haifa on the boat and they would go, we would go to Cyprus. Now, of all the places I thought that I would be safe um, from government um, intrusion, that would be um, in Israel. Um, I said to the 
um, patrol boat that stopped us. I said, you know, my taxes probably paid for your boat. I'm an American and we give you billion dollars a year. And why are you pointing guns at me and harassing me and all the rest of this stuff? It got into a very, very kind of weird state where these young people on the boat, they wanted to, they wanted to impound the boat. And in fact, they did impound my boat in Haifa. They guided us in. There was like three or four other patrol boats. They all guided us in. Um, they took me into an office. I was under arrest. Um, they looked at my passport, and you could see my passport, you know, Turkish, Lebanese stamps, uh, Syrian stamps. Oh, they were just like freaked because of all these places. And plus, I had Tunisian stamps in there. And the, the, at the time, Tunisia was the home of where the PLO had lived. And so there's, you know, an Algerian stamp. They, they were like freaked out. And um, I was interrogated quite heavily. And they had my boat. And then I just said, look, I want to talk to um, the American ambassador. I need to talk to the American ambassador. And then they just sort of just sort of backed up a little bit. And it turned out that Irish had had some... Irish had some influence in Israel, um, especially with the Canadian um, ambassador. And, and there was some conversations going on behind closed doors. Uh, my mate, who was, was French, found everything to be quite amusing. And um, she, said, <laughs> she says, you cannot bother me, I am French. And the Israelis sort of just like say, okay. You know, where it was me, um, I was in a concrete room with no windows and I really thought these guys were going to start pulling fingernails and stuff out of me. And they were doing it to scare me. And then the strangest thing in the world happened. They came in, this man, I, who, whatever, I never, never saw him before. He came in, he threw a file on the table. It was the old police detective thing, throwing a file. You know what's in here, blah, blah, blah. It's going to get you convicted of this, that, and other thing. That kind of, you know, that whole scenario that you see on TV. He looked at this and he says, well, Lieutenant Dodgson, what are you doing here? And as it turns out that they had looked up and they had found my military service record. And they had, they had examined it very, very closely. And he basically said, this is a very, you're very suspicious as a person um, in this part of the world because of your training. Now, I would, if you are a part of an operation with the American government now, fine, just tell us, and we will go on from there. If not, you have some serious, some serious answers to give. And I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'm just sailing. I said, I've already done my service. I don't need to do it anymore. I said, I'm helping this family out. It was a charter. It turned into a rescue mission for refugees and their family. They have their passports. They're good people trying to get out of a bad situation. And nobody is here to harm the Israelis or to harm the government or to change politics, to change the economy, to, in other words, do anything that is against the bubbles and environments that you have built and erected all around Israel and the Lebanese had built, and the Syrians had built, it has absolutely nothing to do with this. This is people 
that are coming from a place that's very damaged downriver, and I'm helping them find a place where they can be happy and can create their own safe environment. I stayed there in that room for about five hours. The man with the file never came back. I was escorted, abruptly escorted back to my boat, and the family was already on the boat. Uh, Irish and Cecilia were on the boat. My mate was on the boat, and I was told to leave immediately. I said, I am very happy to leave immediately. So I cast off my lines, and I went out, and I went out without looking at the weather whatsoever. And we got the shit kicked out of us on the way to Cyprus. Thank goodness. And at this time, the wind had shifted, as I said before. It usually goes from the north. In this case, it was coming from the south. And it blew us into Cyprus like you would not believe. We had 40 knots. The seas were very confused. And they're very short. Mediterranean seas are way different than Atlantic seas or Pacific seas. Atlantic seas are different than, than the Pacific seas. And people actually, if they've only sailed in the Mediterranean, once they go out into the Atlantic, uh, they will get seasick because of the different wave motion. And this was exactly what was going on. And we were just, it was raining. We had serious squalls. We left at the worst time we could possibly leave. And it was in the afternoon. And it was just very squally. And it was 90 degrees plus, And the wind was just howling. And the wind was full of dust, sand, okay? This pink sand. It blew so hard by the time we got into Cyprus, okay? My port side of my wood mast, which is varnished, okay, around the, the rounded um, corners, it had been peeled off as if somebody sandblasted the mast. I had, I had sand in my teeth and my hair and my ears, my nose, between my toes. I had it everywhere. Yes, and there too. The wind finally laid down for us. It's about, it's a good sail. It's about 200 nautical miles or so. It's a, for my boat, it was a, a two-day sail. And we got in the next day. Um, not the next day, but the next, late the next evening, around uh, 11 o'clock. And it was like entering a whole new world. People were happy to see you. There's a marina, get cleaned up. Food, restaurants, glamour, shiny things, wonderful. And we dropped off Irish and Cecilia and their family and the kids. They went to a hotel. They were literally on a plane flying to Canada before we left the next day on the boat. We stayed a couple of extra days, actually, but they were gone. And here we are. Our world had just come back to where it started, our environment, our safety, our home, our boat. A little used, a little beat up, a little need for a little tender loving care. 
but all in all in good shape. I replaced the D-ring in the deck, which was actually a big job. Um, threw some varnish on the masts, which I did uh, while they were in place. Um, washed out uh, some halyards. Um, got those cleaned up. A um, couple of the sails needed to be cleaned to wash those. So we spent about three days just doing maintenance. And one of the things about going to these different areas is that environmentally, um, Turkey is very, very careful about their water. Their water is very clean. And the same with Greece. Um, Beirut and Israel would be clean, except that Israel is clean and they watch how their water is. But Beirut's a disaster area for that kind of environmental stuff. And Syria is just, there's nobody in Syria. There's, you know, there's no coming and going in Syria, per se. And there's no regulations for environment. They don't really care about the environment there. In Cyprus, they do care about the environment very much. And I had the poor captain come by and tell me that it was forbidden to allow gray water into the harbor. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I said, but okay. And I had fabricated these blackwater tanks. So all the poop could stay in the boat and then be pumped out. Because originally the boat didn't come with those. But I had, I had put those in because the United States Coast Guard had required them and I couldn't license the boat. You know, you know how that stuff is. And eventually, um, uh, the gray, I, I, you know, basically the gray water was coming out of the bathroom sinks and was coming out of the kitchen sink. And it just was a hose that ran straight to, you know, um, right out a hull fitting, right into the water. It was gray water. It didn't matter. But according to these guys, it didn't matter. They fined me $400 for that. And I had to... Um, show before I could leave that I had a gray water tank and that the gray water was could be changed. So all my shower water I rerouted into my bilge. I took my I took one pump in my bilge, bilge pump, and I redirected it into a um, five gallon um, plastic tank polypropylene tank and then I just put a cap on it and had an air vent so all the water from the sink and all the rest of the stuff could go in I showed the guy and he looked at me he said that's very clever I said thank you because it was just a temporary thing for me to get the hell out of the port I said I'm leaving I'm leaving as soon as you give me the papers I'm leaving and finally the guy relented and that cost me 200 extra dollars, not to mention the pipes and the fitting and the plastic, all the rest of the stuff. So it's a scam that these guys are running on everybody because most everybody allows gray water to go into their, their harbor and their waters. The black water, of course, we can all see. But anyway, I had all of it disconnected before I sailed outside the breakwater. And then we sailed another two 
two days, solid two days, I think it was. We got to Rhodes two days later. It's about 290, 300 nautical miles. So um, we got there the next morning in Rhodes. Um, went into Mendraki, tied the boat off. Um, I went and got a big fat Euro, sat down with my mate. We drank a bottle of wine. And we fell asleep at doing anything. We were safe. We were back in our own environment. But we had learned so much about life and about the downriver kind of tragedies that happened to people. And we were really happy and proud to assist these people. And um, it actually turned out to be quite lucrative for us, too. Because they didn't do another charter for the rest of the year. That was an amazing story, Scott, and it wasn't at all where I thought it was going to go. Um, I think it was... Uh, really said something about you that you that you did that after you dropped them off uh what happened next well uh, after i dropped them off i spent a, a few days sort of um relaxing uh, got a chance to uh, go around cyprus a little bit uh, cyprus is a beautiful beautiful island um tons of ruins tons of everything it's it's also a little you know it's the same sort of um gray area, you know, shady people in sunshine kind of place. But it is a lot of fun. It's a really beautiful place. And it's definitely something you have to put on your bucket list for for sailing. And then after a couple of days, um, you know, we kind of shook the cobwebs out and refueled the boat. Um, and then we took off uh, for Rhodes, which is about almost 250, 300 um, nautical miles. So it was a, you know, it was a two-day sail, basically. Um, unfortunately, it's a two-day sail, almost point dead into the wind. So we motored most of the way. Um, and that's sort of, then uh, we got back to Rhodes and, you know, essentially the season was over. I touched base and um, I think I, I, my mate left on a plane. Uh, I never saw her again. Um, that's another story. And then, um, I picked up some crew and I sailed back to the Caribbean and I was back in the Caribbean by December 6th, 7th, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I began the uh, Caribbean charter season. So it was just like, it, it doesn't stop. You just keep moving around and, and keep working. So I understand, uh, you know, moving on from this story, we, we have a little bit of housekeeping. Oh, yeah. And a little bit of housekeeping. We ask your support, you know, to go go to uh, the offshore ships locker. Anything you buy there will help support the podcast so we can continue going on. We don't, you know, I, I guess the other thing, too, is, is that, you know, we're trying to sell some merchandise um, it's a part of the, the American way to, to sell some stuff, but, you know, in lieu of having, uh, uh, sponsors and, and we are growing, um, 
but uh, it's 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 a way we can support the uh, production and and do more things um, with the production. Yeah, exactly, and it's things you would buy anyways um, for all your your sailing gear needs, and it's a great way to help help us out, and also, you know, we get to bring you these stories without a ton of advertising. So, uh, thanks thanks again for listening. Um, and moving on from that, what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, next week I'm going to talk about wind. And very specifically, I'm going to talk about catabatic wind. Um, catabatic in Greek uh, means um, a descending wind. It is the wind that comes over the mountain and descends down the side onto the ocean. And if you happen to be sailing along there... Um, you know, the, the wind can change an instant. If you have a catabatic wind, um, it can blow anywhere between, you know, I've had it blow almost a hundred knots, um, and just knock the boat down. And I'm going to tell that story. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>